Hello, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and each show I bring to you an interesting and provocative scholar to discuss topics in social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you enjoy what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Today, I am joined by George Mason Professor of Economics and New York Times bestselling author Brian Kaplan. Brian is the author of The Myth of the Rational Voter, of Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, Open Borders, The Case Against Education, among others. And today, we are discussing his latest book, which is a collection of essays titled Don't Be a Feminist, Essays on Genuine Justice. And if the title makes you uneasy, please wait and hear Brian out before reacting. Brian, thank you for joining me. Great pleasure to be back, Chris. Can you tell us about the general thrust of this book? This is the third in the collections of your blog essays you've been releasing. Um, The first one was uh, Labor Econ versus the World, and the second one was How Evil Are Politicians? So tell us about the general thrust of the, the essays in this book and about the title in particular. The general thrust of this book is everything relating to justice, a bunch of essays on that theme. So I have a bunch on the so-called social justice movement or the woke movement. That is the the first part of the book. I've got a bunch of essays on discrimination and its prevalence in our society and the economic way of thinking about discrimination. I've got a bunch of essays relating to the morality of immigration, which I think is another big area of injustice in our society. And then there are some others at the end on trying to live a just life in our unjust society. Uh, but the uh, the title essay. Uh, so in all these other books of essays, these are really just the, the best essays that I wrote from the period of 2005 to 2022. For this, there was a brand new essay that I've been wanting to write for about 10 years called Don't Be a Feminist, A Letter to My Daughter. So many people immediately get angry, as you mentioned, when they hear the title. But it's just being accurate and honest. The reason I wrote the essay is I don't want my daughter to be a feminist. And then I wrote the essay explaining why. Obviously, I'm not angry at my 10-year-old daughter. I'm not angry about at anyone, really. Uh, this is not an essay about anger. It's an essay about calming down and thinking about the meaning of the word and what the evidence in, is in favor of the premises behind it. I mean, really, I just start this essay with the question of what does feminism even mean? There is a definition you'll get out of a lot of dictionaries these days saying feminism just means the view that women should be treated equally with men, politically, economically, socially. But then there's a big problem with that definition. Namely, we've got a big poll that asks people what they, well, first of all, whether they're feminists or not, and then ask them actually, do you believe in the equal treatment of women? And guess what? Almost all non-feminists also agree with the equal treatment of women which means that cannot be the definition of the word. It'd be like saying feminism is the theory that the sky is blue. Yeah, well, feminists believe the sky is blue. Guess what? Everybody believes the sky is blue. So then the question is, what really distinguishes feminists from other people who say they are not feminists? And what I say is that what really distinguishes feminists from everyone else is the view that our society treats men more fairly than women. Right, that is, I think, the heart of it. If you read uh, the uh, you know, more deeply into the definitions, often they will mention that soon. It's the idea of our society is somehow biased against women and in favor of men. 
Uh, that I say is a much more constructive definition. This is one where, again, if you are a feminist, you almost certainly have a long list of complaints about not just that women are treated perfectly, but the women are treated less fairly than men, probably a lot less fairly. Now, the other thing, if you're not a feminist, you're probably either agnostic about it, saying, I don't know whether society treats men more fairly than women, or you just disagree. Um, now, again, obviously, just a definition doesn't settle things. That's why the rest of the essay just goes through the many complaints. Uh, you know, there are many accusations about how our society treats women less fairly than men. Uh, there are also a whole bunch that get a lot less publicity about our society treats men less fairly than women. What I do is I just try to, to first get a list and then second dissect those and say, all right, are these in fact reasonable complaints? Or does it just come down to unequal performance, unequal success caused by unequal performance? Yeah. So I, I went through that list and, you know, the, on the on the easy side for that project, as you mentioned in the essay, there's, you know, a long history of people with this concern listing the ways that society might treat women unfairly. There's also a smaller movement that frequently tries to list the ways that society might be treating men unfairly. It seems like just like an intractable problem to me. Uh, all, so many of the complaints aren't super comparable. And even if you've got this long list, I don't know, it, it's not like it's a long list from a lot of quantitative social scientists who have been quantifying and listing these things for, for a long time. It's, it seems like a lot more qualitative complaints. I don't know, what, what, what gives you confidence that the two lists you came up with are, are easy to compare one way or another? Because I, I, I came away feeling like, yeah, I don't know really what the answer is. I can think of a lot of ways where society treats men or women less fairly. I don't feel confident in the end that I could say which is more. Yeah, I mean, I can understand that. So you could say that you're adding up a lot of apples and oranges. A lot of the complaints are, are comparable. For example, there's the common story that women just put in a lot more hours of toil in our society when you add up their paid labor plus their unpaid labor. There's the idea of the second shift. Here we actually have excellent data from sociology on time use that shows that it's just not true. That on average, the total amount of paid plus unpaid labor that men and women in our society do is almost exactly equal. What we do see is that in different subgroups, there are differences. For example, single moms seem to put in more hours than almost any other group. On the other hand, stay-at-home moms put in less than almost any other group. So this is one where you say it's not that there's a difference by gender. Rather, there are big differences within genders, uh, which, which again, is not the usual story that you hear. And the question of things like, uh, like pay performance, this is one where there is a lot of very good social science where we can see that we can explain almost all of the pay gap just with some very simple, with some simple predictors like, well, do you work full time? How many hours you're working? Things like you know things like that, and then also you know college major STEM pays more. Whether you're a man or a woman, STEM pays more, and it's pretty easy to see why. Like STEM people can do amazing things. <laughs> that's why people don't do STEM. Right? It's like, gee, I don't think I can really learn to do that stuff. That seems too hard. You know, people so like people that do specialize in those areas make more money. Obviously, there's also things like whether you're whether you are distracted by family responsibilities, you tend to make less money there. Then there are other ones. Yeah. So here's another one that I think really is quite easily quantified. There's a lot of complaints about violence against women. Here it is totally clear that violence against men is massively greater than violence against women. It's not even clear, actually, that sexual violence against women is greater than sexual violence against men once you factor in prison rape. Are there numbers about that? I saw that in the essay. That that was the, one yeah, of the claims yeah. in the essay that, that made me jump back and be skeptical. Right. 
Uh, so yeah, there there have there there was a very good survey of prison rape that was done for U.S. prisons. Uh, there's a lot of interesting facts about it uh, that we could go over uh, if you really want to. It's a gruesome topic, but nevertheless, yeah. But the popular stereotype that there's a lot of rape in prison is true. It is not, however, inevitable. There are some prisons that have very little, some that have uh, a lot. Uh, if you're wondering about the difference, a lot of the difference comes down to whether the warden says, well, obviously it's a prison, there's going to be rape, or one who says rape is a crime, we're going to crush it. It does seem like a lot of differences in rape between prisons comes down to whether the warden actually cares about it or not. Uh, then some other surprising facts is that a lot of the rape is actually by prison employees rather than by other prisoners. So I think I think if I remember correctly, a, majority, a, a narrow majority is actually not done by prisoners on prisoners, but by prison employees on prisoners. But anyway, like the you know the more general fact of violence against men is much more common. That is true in all known societies. Um, so it's really you can't even argue it. Yeah, if you're talking about just general violence, and and now you do you do mention this in both of these cases, the perpetrators are also men. Uh, mm. Violence against men and violence against women most of the time. Does that tip the scales of of fairness or unfairness in your calculation? I mean, I really don't see how. So it just comes down to, look, if you are, you know, the, the fact that almost all violent criminals are male, it's a very small part of the male population and they target men more than women. So to say that shows that our society is unfair towards women, like what you're going to collectively blame the vast majority of non-criminal men for the fact that most criminals are male. Uh, it's hard to understand, especially when you realize, look, it's not like the male criminals are targeting women on average. No, they're targeting other men. I thought you were going to say, well, I, you do say in the essay in part also that even if it did, even if you did want to go that route, the sensible thing to say is if more men are criminals, well, that's a that's a point against men. And it's just it's it's relating to this performance difference. Men have different yeah. kinds of performances in, in certain yeah. kinds of things and sometimes for the worse. Right. I mean, I mean, what I would say is this is a reason that you probably shouldn't feel sorry for men that there's so many more men in prison. It probably is largely determined by the fact that men just commit a lot more violent crime, especially. Although even there, as I said, you know, worth keeping an open mind, the idea that a woman murderer might get a lighter sentence than a male murderer. That's not crazy. Uh, since I'm an economist, a lot of what I focus on is market outcomes. And there we have a very standard economic model saying it's just not plausible. There could be large differences in pay by gender for equally qualified employees for a simple reason. I think it's really true that equally qualified women were paid 20 or 30 percent less. There is a no brainer get rich quick scheme that firms could use to make a pile of money, fire all your men and replace them with equally qualified women for lower wages. The, the fact that it is so that is such a simple strategy and that we don't see it being done is a piece of is a reason to be super skeptical of the usual story that women are just arbitrarily paid a lot less you know, because of competition. Now, in something like the judicial system, it's a lot more plausible that there is built in unfairness because it's not like a judge that is that discriminates against one gender or one race suddenly loses his job. Right. It's not like a market where the fairer the judge is, the more money he makes or anything like that. That's one where you do have to look at it a lot more carefully. Well, even there, you know, so I would say that the large majority of the gender gap in incarceration is explained by greater male criminality, although maybe there's a little bit that is just due to people are more sympathetic to women. My loose impression from when I've looked into this kind of thing is that the areas of the justice system that are most likely to be biased for irrational reasons are the areas that have high degrees of 
discretion on the part of officials with with less oversight and sentencing is probably fits that bill. Uh, you know, like whether the sentence is a little higher or a little lower comes down to a pretty discretionary choice on the judge, right? Right. You know, for example, like the burning bed defense, where a woman murders her husband and then says he was beating me, right? And if the jury believes her, then she probably won't totally walk, but it's going to get a greatly reduced sentence. This is one where if a man were to go and burn his sleeping wife alive and then say she was beating me, people would just they think say that's ridiculous and throw the book at him. Something that I don't talk about, but is a big part of a book that I have a lot of affection for, Warren Farrell's uh, book, uh, Women Can't Hear What Men Don't Say. He does have several chapters in there about spousal abuse. And he makes a case that I was had a lot of difficulty believing at first, but he didn't win me over that when, if you really look at the numbers, actually within spousal abuse, it is very similarly common for women to physically abuse the, their male, their partners as for men. Uh, then I was like, me just saying, well, the severity would be different. And he said, well, women are more likely to use weapons. Women are more likely to get another guy to go and do their dirty work for them. Uh, so that's one where I didn't really work that into my essay because I learned it after I was done with the essay, but it did really get me thinking. I'll include that book in the show notes. Um, I mean, it's one that just sounds like a complete touchy-feely book, but it's just full of insight and facts. Well, I, I had definitely heard that the the prevalence of, you know, in the gender breakdown of domestic abuse is comparable, which does sound believable to me. But yeah, that my, my first thought, like yours, was the severity must be radically different, though. I'm, I'm imagining that yeah. uh, men much more often use, you know, lethal or close to lethal force in their in their violence even if it's not super common that that yeah. it happens more often, but it, the weapon angle didn't occur to me or the yeah. using other men didn't yeah. occur to me, but that's right. Which uh, Farrell points out, if a woman gets her boyfriend to kill her husband, that will not go down as in the data as a spousal murder. Yeah. As domestic violence. That's true. That's interesting. So what about, uh, I, I know you, I know you wrestle with this a little bit, but are there more charitable or, sympathetic definitions of feminism that don't fall prey to what you're saying. Like the one, one that occurred to me is just, you know, a special concern and care for women's issues, especially like women's issues that might touch on the political or social or something. And you don't have to, in that definition, you don't even have to claim that that they are uniquely important or the most important. People have all kinds of reasons for caring about the issues that they care about. One of them might be that you're a woman or one of them just might be that some of these issues strike you in a particular way. So even if the list doesn't work out to be against women on net, you just might care about those issues the way you care about, you know, some people are get really into their, you know, local arts culture. Ukraine. You don't have to Ukraine is the worst, uh, is is the, is the most depressed country in the world to really care about it. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Logically, totally possible. I just don't think this explains more than a small fraction of of self-identified feminists or when people write a book about feminism, especially, you know, I mean, for someone to say, look, I am not, I am absolutely not saying that women are treated less fairly than men are in society. The treatment is very comparable, but I happen to personally care a lot about certain women's issues. I mean, I've never met a person like that. I've never heard a person like that on TV. If you were to find a book of that sort, I would be quite surprised. It just, it, here's the thing. It just isn't very motivating. In order to get, in order to be really concerned about women's issues, it really helps to start with the underlying assumption that women are in fact treated less fairly than men are in society, and that's why I care, right? If it's just I happen to care, even though it's not especially severe, 
that is possible, but I, it, I just think the movement would have very little traction in the world without this whole worldview of female oppression that is so standard. I think it's also worth, worth, worth distinguishing between rank and file feminists and feminist elites. As I say in the book, you know, I'm telling, telling my daughter, look, you know, someone says they're a feminist, don't assume the worst about them. You know, they're pro- probably just a nice person who doesn't like seeing women mistreated. But if you are a feminist author, a professor of women's studies, if you're a feminist elite, then you almost certainly really do believe a strong version of women are treated very unfairly in the society. Men are the ones that are doing it. And well, the unfortunate fact is that the elite feminists are the ones that are in fact the leaders, right? They carry a lot more weight. They get a lot of deference from rank and file feminists. So even if an individual feminist is someone who just says, I don't have anything against men, but nevertheless, if you are deferential to an intellectual elite that totally has that view, it winds up causing a lot of problems for society and leading people in a bad direction. The feminists I was picturing this as capturing was some combination of ordinary people who are on the fence about whether or not they call themselves feminists, probably people who don't use the term often, but you'd ask if you ask them, they'd be like, oh, yeah, sure. And and something like that would would play a role or something like something like an older, more first wave or or the definition you, you led with the belief in equality. So it's like, yeah, it doesn't play a huge role because maybe I believe that a lot of that, though not all, has been achieved. Uh, I don't really use the label a lot, but that's kind of what it is. Or or contemporary like individualist feminists. Or I was speaking with Elizabeth Nolan Brown, and she she's an author for a reason. She I wouldn't say co-signed exactly, but that that definition seemed like it it fit her a little bit. Like it didn't seem like she had a real strong uh, connection with the belief that women are obviously treated much less fairly. But I agree that the, with the more popular contemporary definitions in in academia, that's probably a s- more sensible definition. Right, or, or just in pop culture. You know, in pop culture, some, for some, sure. You know, someone on TV saying, I'm a feminist, and I think that men are treated much more unfairly in our society than women. You would just be confused. What? Well, so, I would be confused in part that they that they said that phrase. I would just think that even if they did believe that, they wouldn't lead with that. But if if you dug down... If like someone didn't say that and I dug down for talking to them and they thought, I just don't think it's obvious that once I, you know, that men or women get treated unfairly. But nevertheless, I have these this special connection to women's issues that I don't think that would be confusing to me. I mean, that that one is a little bit easy to understand. Again, it would be like, hmm, well, that doesn't seem like anything similar to what most people are saying. So, you know, like, you know, I am not the language police. I'm a firm believer in look at the common use of words in order to understand what words mean. Although I'm also a big believer in clarity and avoiding confusion. So once a word means something 95% of the time to keep using it for your 5% is just you know, not a good idea <laughs> intellectually because it just makes people puzzled and it leads to miscommunication. My friend Dan Klein is still trying to revive the word liberalism as a synonym for libertarianism. It's like, look, dude, like that's just not what it means anymore. And like you're not you you are just wasting a lot of time arguing about a word when there's a perfectly good word that does, that's well understood that does describe what you actually mean. So why are you fighting over this label? There are ways you can use that word that I think still get it across even without saying classical. Like if you use the word liberalize, I think the connotation still yeah. feels like. Or if you use the word illiberal, right, as an antonym still feels like the opposite of libertarian or classical liberal or something. There's my 
language is indeed complicated and there can be very slight variations that turn that turn out <laughs> uh, totally opposite things uh, like you know, if you are aware of this then it's uh, then you know you can be able and you're, you're with a sophisticated audience that's totally fine <laughs> if you are trying to express yourself clearly the, uh, to a broad to a broad audience then like really i would say hmm, you, like, you should go and watch the way you're using words to avoid miscommunication that's the worst thing that can happen in a way when you are when you are writing or speaking is people just hear the opposite of what you had in mind. I, I think some of some of that line of questioning was inspired from the sympathy, even if I, I think I agree with you, but the sympathy I have with contemporary libertarians who want to keep the word liberal or liberalism or classical liberalism yeah. alive. But I think well, it is probably a mistake. <laughs> they're, they're, my, they're my friends. I just think that they've got better things to do with their time than fight over a word. They probably do. I think that if someone asks, and it's, any, a lost, any, it's a lost cause, and it's a word. Make new words. That's fine. <laughs> if anyone asked me if if I was a feminist, my first answer would be, I don't know. Maybe. What do you mean by feminism? Yeah. And then and then it would be you know an annoying semantic conversation. But yes, it's also one where if the person was a feminist, you give that answer, they say so. No. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe, or I might just say yes out of concern, out of concern that I was going to offend someone. So you that's that's just the title essay. You you have other other lovely topics in here. One of them that struck me because it's a it's a framing of this issue that I think about a lot is uh well what do you think is the difference between good manners and political correctness? And isn't political correctness just good manners? Because you're a very polite person. I try to be. Well, so like one big part of it is good manners are reciprocal. <laughs> Right. So with good manners, there's an expectation. Well, I do it and then you will do it also. Political correctness is very one sided where one group is supposed to walk on tiptoes or on eggshells and the other group gets to do and say really whatever they want. So that's one part of it. Another part is that with good manners, there are in terms of the reciprocal obligations, there's one obligation is not to go and try to give offense. Another one is not to take offense for an unintended. That's another important part of good manners. A friend of mine actually once had breakfast with Miss Manners herself. I don't know if anyone remembers her, but she was a manners columnist from back the 80s and 90s. And he sat down at breakfast with her and immediately was very self-conscious about his manners. And he was like, oh, gee, I'm probably doing so many things wrong with my <laughs> manners. And then Miss Manners said, oh, it's bad manners to correct other people's manners. Wow, that's awesome. (laughs) That's a good meta manner. I immediately told my mom that because she had been correcting my manners. She goes, well, Miss Manners herself says it's bad manners to correct other people's manners. But more general point of don't go out of your way to give offense. Try to be sensitive to others, but also don't be so hypersensitive that no matter what they do, you're finding faults. That's also terrible manners. Another big part of this is good manners allow people to express whatever thought they want as long as they do it in a genteel way in the right time, so on. Whereas political correctness, there really is no good time for political correctness to discuss the nature versus nurture question and the extent to which differences in human behavior are caused by genes. Whereas good manners would say, well, it's probably not a good time to discuss this when there's someone who has a severe disease. And then you say, oh, well, you know what? Probably that disease is caused by your bad genetics. All right. Well, that's not good manners. So like the person probably doesn't want to discuss it at all. That's uh, you're sorting their feelings. On the other hand, if you are at an academic conference on the question of genetics and health, that point, say, look, it is this is the point of the conference. 
We're not going out our ways to say, hey, if you got bad genes, tough luck for you, too bad, ha ha. But rather to say, well, look, you know, we're, this is a conference about the effect of genes on behavior. It's a reasonable question. If you're very touchy about this, uh, you know, well, we're not even going to say you shouldn't be here, but that is good manners. Is if you really can't have a civil conversation on it, then don't show up. And then we can have a discussion about the evidence without having to worry about stepping on people's toes, other than in the very basic way of, like, you know, stay calm, don't yell at people, be pleasant, but also don't be hypersensitive about people discussing a factual question. Yeah, I think being, you know, you you have an essay not in this book about being friendly. Uh, I, I think it's it's a, is that your an essay, some yeah. advice to libertarians about, about uh, their advocacy is making sure yeah. they're friendly? Yeah, I mean, like there's so many times people say, how can we make our arguments better? The arguments are awesome. You're not going to get better arguments than that. Just present them in a friendly manner and work on your tone, work on your smile, work on just the way that you present yourself. That's where libertarians have a massive deficit. In terms of arguments, I think the arguments are really good. It's just the, the worst part of it is good arguments just don't, aren't that effective. But another part is that people do not care what you know until they know that you care. Better to present yourself as a kind and gentle person than to say, hey, look, my arguments walk on water, kneel before me. Yeah, I know you're a big Dale Carnegie fan and how to yeah. win friends and influence people is probably is probably the book to recommend for for people yeah. wanting to be more friendly in the way they talk to people. You've got to like demonstrate that on some, you know, important foundational level, you're on the same side as the person you're talking to, even if you're not on the same side of this particular political issue. Right. And in fact, I mean, like, honestly, just to start meeting people with controversial topics is not a good idea. Better to go and say, hi, like, you know, talk about your family. I know, like I've debated Mark Krikorian, head of the Center for Immigration Studies a bunch of times. And you know what I always say when I see him is like, how are your children? I know he's got kids. I know he's got a son as an engineer. It was like, be a human being. Like, yeah. you know, talk, talk, about, talk about things where that are non-threatening, let people go and share something about themselves, get to know them. And after a while, they decide this person is not a monstrous jerk. And then you can say, all right, so, you know, curious what you think about this. And it just goes over a lot better. You know, first establish a foundation of genuine friendship and comity. And then if you want to talk about ideas afterwards, then it was, it's just much more fruitful to do it on that basis. Uh, you know, of course, the arguments we see on Twitter pretty much are deliberately engineered to be as unpersuasive as possible to people that don't already agree. So keep that in mind. Yeah, they maximize the un the unfriendliness very often, and uh, I don't find it difficult necessarily to talk about controversial things because almost none of my friends are libertarians. Uh, most of my friends are clearly on the left, and and they're my friends and my family, and I love them, and I don't have a hard time talking to them if they want to about things they will disagree with me about if it's like one on one. And I mean, I mean, I would say in terms of Dale Carnegie, you seem like you're naturally very friendly. I'll say this just stuff did not come naturally to me. I read Dale Carnegie in high school and I immediately realized it was true. And then I didn't do anything differently for, for like 10 years. <laughs> and then over time I said, okay, what can I do in order to improve? You know, like I talk about this stuff, not because I'm a model, not because I'm great at it. I'm not, I'm someone that is a flawed person who tried to improve. I think I have gotten a lot better over time. Uh, when I finally reread Dale Carnegie a few years ago, I said, wow, why didn't I listen the first time? Why did I just reinvent the wheel? This guy laid it all out for me. I said, well, there's no point kicking myself for mistakes I made in the past. I've just got to go and try to do better. 
as long as we're on the topic of good manners and political correctness, can you weigh in on something for me? I yeah. cannot think of a good term. I'm concerned about not using slurs or put downs when I refer to like po- people I disagree with politically. And I just can't think of a, a of a good political term to refer to people in the social justice camp. Social justice warrior is obviously a pejorative. Woke is increasingly seen as a pejorative. I feel like the term that they self-apply is often without adjectives, just as activists or or scholars yeah. or something, or social justice activists. Social yeah. justice progressive feels accurate. Have you, have you found a term that feels like they would self-apply and doesn't feel like too much of a mouthful? Yeah, probably there's that one. I mean, again, that one is... You know, builds in so much positivity <laughs> that I think that it's more like saying I want to be called Brian the Great. Refer to my refer to me in that manner at all times. Uh, I, I don't mind building in the positivity. It doesn't. The, the terms yeah. are loaded enough that it yeah. it feels yeah, like I mean, a label. I mean, the thing about woke is you know, so like you know, like it, it is one that a lot of people self applied. I mean, it's uh, it is one they that, did. Yeah, it was co opted. I think by the yeah, opponents. Co-opted. I don't know. I mean, I, I think that it's. I think that that one is still the most descriptive, even if it had, you know, in terms of it has a moderately negative connotation. But you know, probably for the reason that actual woke stuff is uh, viewed very negatively by most people, because you know, even though it has a great, great cultural dominance, there's also a large silent majority that just hates this stuff. And in some of the later essays in part one of the book, I say yes. Well, with a very good reason to people. Not agree with this stuff. This is a a, a very bad movement. That um, you know, not only are they pushing wrong conclusions and bad policies, but also it is one that is unusual in really just trying to prevent thought itself. I say I describe it as an unusually Orwellian movement, where they really do actually things like that are almost straight out of Orwell. Say, well, we are anti-racist. Like, no, you're actually racist. I, you know, you know, it is one like anti-racism is racism or racism is anti-racism, as it turns out, the way they use it. Re- recently, there was a fight in the state of Virginia where there's a new person who's been pointed to the border visitors. And there is a group of woke student activists at the University of Virginia saying this person is politicizing the university. The university is already ultra politicized by people like you. And like, if you don't have 100 percent control, then you say that it's being politicized. Good grief. Orwellian maybe maybe isn't the word, but the, the criticism that gets thrown around is um oh now I'm blanking on his name Kafka esque yes yes well that, well, that one too <laughs> is the is the kind of Kafka trap nature of some of it because I've because I've read I've read a decent amount of it um you know trying to give give certain ideas the benefit of the doubt um I've read some D'Angelo and some Kendi and there is definitely a vibe of. You your your options are either to you know shut up and agree, but if you don't agree, if you don't engage in the conversation, if you do anything except for shut up and agree, it's you know evidence of your complicity in something like yeah. something negative, whether it's racism or white fragility or misogyny or something. Right. So yeah. You know, so I have another essay in Don't Be a Feminist called Implicit and Structural Witchery which just begins with this hypothetical of imagine you are a witch hunter in colonial Salem. You do an exhaustive hunt through the whole colony. You can't find a single actual witch with a broom and a cauldron and newts and so forth. And then you show up. And one thing you could say is, huh, it turns out we're wrong. There's no witches here, but that doesn't sound very good. So instead you could say, all right, well, well, 
we didn't see any obvious cases of witchery, but there's a lot of implicit and structural witchery. It's like, well, what does that mean? Well, there's a lot of people who don't go to church every day, and that's really a kind of implicit witchery to not go and attend mass every single day or whatever they would have called it in Salem. That's really saying that God is not as important to you as the world. The world is ruled by Satan. So yeah, that's actually a kind of witchery there. Or to say, hey, look, also, there are a bunch of wealthy merchants in our colony who do business with Catholics. And we all know Catholics are the tool of the devil, even if they don't seem to realize it. And that, and these people who are at the highest level of society. So that's really a kind of structural witchery that there's all these successful people that do business with Catholics. So there's one where within that society, once people start talking this way, you'd probably be very nervous. Say, well, wait a second. By that standard, everything's witchery. It's like, huh, and guess what? Saying that's witchery too. Uh, let's go and crack down on them. Well, it seems to me that the lack of obvious and overt and visible witchery is is very concerning and is a sign of just how insidious witchery yeah. has become. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like you can totally say that. But this is also a case of, well, wait a second. If you're not part of the society, you see what a ridiculous power play this is. And this is an effort by people that are whipping up a panic against a problem that barely exists to claim that the problem is horrible no matter what they find. Right? And of course, you could see the same thing in, say, the Islamic Republic of Iran. If you say, look, we're fighting atheism, like, where are the atheists in Iran? Like, every time someone forgets to do their prayers, that's atheism. Every time someone cares more about money than the Quran, that's atheism. It's like, all right, so basically, you're just going to lower the bar to, uh, to the point where everything qualifies, and then you get to rule by fear. Right? And I can understand why you would try to pull that off if you're power hungry, but why other people like who, who are not that afraid of you would let you get away with it. That is the real question. I think that is what's going on with the complaining about implicit and structural racism, implicit and structural sexism. It comes down to you can't actually find concrete examples in any great abundance. And so you're going to go and change the standards backed with intimidation of anyone who points out that the emperor has no clothes and you really don't have a leg to stand on. So lest everyone think Brian is filling this book with right-wing hackery, you are also a rabid leftist in this book on occasion. And like Tony Soprano said, in this house, Christopher Columbus is a hero. <laughs> so why is the left right about Columbus? Basic facts, yeah. On the one hand, sometimes you, you know, people get called a racist just for failing to be an activist. Yes, in the, sli the slogan, white silence is violence. I'm eating at a restaurant, not crusading its racism. So that makes me guilty of violence. Uh, Christopher Columbus is not one of those cases. If you just look at the uncontested facts of what he did, you know, he goes and he sails to the island of Hispaniola and then he starts murdering and enslaving people. He's like, we've got diaries for him saying, I'm going to bring you slaves as many as you shall desire. Right? And, and even like, like, he doesn't even have the bad excuse that this was the norm in his society. He's someone that changed the norm in his society. He's someone who... He was a pioneer, Brian. Yeah, pioneer of slavery and murder. Yeah, that's what he did. Uh, so yeah, like the, uh, the idea that he's a hero is ludicrous. Like he was a terrible person. And furthermore, the idea, well, we shouldn't judge him by modern standards. I mean, that is moral relativism of the highest kind. And it really does lead to certain conclusions. Say, well, look, guess what? In, in Hitler's time, it was normal to go and do terrible stuff to Jews. It's true. 
Why? Because of Hitler. Hitler was a leader. I mean, like, you know, but like these attitudes that Hitler had were much more common at that time. He just tapped into that. And we're, we're going to go and blame the architect of the Holocaust for that. Yeah. Hell yeah. We're going to blame him. Like, it's not that it was so hard to realize that murder was wrong. Like, you know, there is an article, there's an argument you can give almost any five-year-old saying, well, look, would it have been all right for Billy to go and punch you and take your toys? No. Well, then was it wrong for you to punch Billy and take his toys? Yes, that's really all the level of moral reasoning that you need to see that murdering people of outgroups is wrong, that enslaved that slavery is wrong. I don't the, the idea that people like like couldn't do, like they needed like some philosopher to enlighten them. I just think that's wrong. I think people always knew that what they were doing was morally questionable, or at least they didn't put in the five minutes of thought into the question about whether it was okay. Well, and I, I I'm not sure if you mentioned it in this essay, but he was. Not maybe not widely and universally, but he was certainly criticized in his time yeah. too. Bartolome de las Casas wrote a lot yeah, about Colum- the horrors of Columbus, and he might have exaggerated a little bit, but I don't think dramatically. Yeah, um, yeah. you know, like, like people will say, well, most of it was disease. All right, well, do you think there could have been some connection between conquering society, causing famine, and disease? Maybe. Right. You know, like, will disease spread quicker in a population that is starved and, uh, and like fleeing, running for their lives? Depends upon the disease, but that's totally plausible. But in any case, all right. Well, yeah, but like, like, so a lot of it, I mean, most of it was disease, but still like, you know, like you go and you start a war of conquest against another society. Well, you know, like it's mass murder. And like, what are you planning on doing? I mean, yeah, you're going to enslave them. So a terrible stuff. Yeah. Outright an outrage. Hero worship is a powerful thing, uh, so I, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but I'm always surprised that there still is a reasonably large contingent on the right or who, wherever there is, maybe just like in Italy or Spain, uh, wanting to lionize Columbus. Like you can, you can certainly acknowledge, like sure, takes. I think this a lot about war in general. A lot of horrible things people do probably take bravery in some way or another, but it's still horrible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like people got really mad at Bill Maher for saying that the 9-11 terrorists were courageous. Of course they were courageous. A chicken wouldn't have done that. Like, there's a lot of courageous villains. Well, you know, yeah. like just because someone's a villain doesn't mean that they that they lack you know that they lack any good traits. And that's really but, obvious when you're watching like, good fiction yeah. or reading good yeah. fiction. Like you can clearly see the difference between cowardly and courageous villains. There, that that difference is a big yeah, deal yeah. in how you think of the villain. Yeah, I mean, and furthermore, even to think of courage as being a like a, like an uncontested virtue. It's like, look, whether whether being courageous is a good thing depends upon what you're being courageous for, of course. If you're courageously defending Hitler, then look, look, yeah, look, it'd be better if you were a chicken. Yeah, so you know, courage is one of those things where whether it's good or bad really depends upon what you're using it for. I like to think about courage in the in the Aristotelian sense of being the of being the golden mean and and too much would be rashness or foolhardiness or something like that. But maybe that's just getting a dogmatic with word yeah. use because people definitely don't yeah. use it that way. So another way that you are a flaming leftist in this book <laughs> is you, Brian, write a lot about immigration and open borders and you're an open borders advocate. So I think all of the books that all of your your essay collections have included some of your work on immigration. And this one is no exception. As you mentioned, it's, it's also a, you know, a big issue of justice. And you're you're a fan of drawing comparisons between popular or at least accepted, you know, within the Overton window kind of policies that are accepted 
like border walls or whatever and comparing these to more unaccepted things and saying that immigration comes out looking worse, say, than apartheid in your view or or things like that or or the Jim Crow South. And that's a very controversial take. I don't recall if you take that exact take in, in here, but I was just wondering if you could talk about your background with getting interested in and doing research on immigration and why you why it's such an important issue to you. So I am an economist and I so I read economics. Um, the interesting thing about the economics of immigration is that the gains of it are just seem to be so vast. Something where you don't need a lot of background to see what's going on. Right. So just think about what happens when a Haitian moves from Haiti to Miami and starts shining shoes. Overnight, before he's even learned English, his income multiplies by a factor of 10 or 20. Right. And this is very standard whenever immigrants from very poor countries move to rich countries is they get a job and suddenly they are making 10 or 20 times as much money as they were back home. Right now, if you're wondering, like, well, how is that possible to suddenly be making 10 or 20 times as much money? The answer that makes sense is, well, their productivity has to be a lot higher in the country that they are going to than the country they were coming from. And then you say, huh, well, then why is the people want to stop immigration if all that it's doing is moving someone from a country where their productivity is low to a country where the productivity is high? This does take us to the issue of scalability. How many immigrants can you move and still expect these gains to continue? Uh, what I do in my book, Open Borders, is say, yeah, we can expect them to continue over really the entire range we would ever observe. Uh, there's very little sign that this is just not a replicable fact. Now, this is the economics. But as a philosopher, I know this is something that I have been interested in for a long time as well. It's a question of, so why is it that these restrictions on mobility, restrictions on work, people think they're okay, whereas almost any other ones people be horrified by? Right, so almost everyone is horrified by Jim Crow laws, which did actually say legally there's some jobs blacks can't do, there's some places blacks can't live. But what you're doing with immigration laws is saying, look, there is no place in the United States that a Haitian who doesn't get those almost impossible to get papers can legally live, no place where he can legally work. It doesn't matter that the landlord wants him, doesn't matter that the employer wants him. Right? And how can that be justified? Uh, so that's a lot of what I talk about. In the case of Jim Crow, like people said, well, blacks were citizens and immigrants weren't. So, okay, so it would have been okay to have Jim Crow laws as long as blacks were never made citizens in the first place. Would that have been all right? And it's like, well, like they're here, so they should get to be citizens. Like, well, tourists don't get to be citizens, right? What is this thing about citizenship that means that if you have it, then you are entitled to receive decent treatment. If you don't, you can be denied what would seem to be very basic rights. So again, like what immigration laws do, it doesn't just say you're not eligible for welfare, you're not eligible for government benefits. It says that if there's an American that totally wants to go and hire you to mow his lawn or work as his nanny, it is illegal to do so unless you get a piece of paper from the government, a piece of paper that's almost impossible to get. What do you think is the moral difference between immigration restrictions and emigration restrictions, if any? Ultimately, not that much. Right? You can say, well, one says that you aren't allowed to leave and the other one that you're not allowed to come. But the thing is, is that if the difference between your country says you can't leave and no other country on earth and every other country on earth says you're not allowed to come is basically the same. Right? So I have a couple of essays on the Berlin Wall there where I said, look, imagine that instead of East Germany saying you're not free to leave, every other country on earth said you're not free to come. That would have meant the same thing for people that were happen to be born in East Germany. Right. It would come out and say, so, well, either way, I'm not allowed to, uh, I'm, I can't get out of this hellish police state. 
Now, again, if you say, well, isn't it sort of the same thing where you can't come on my property? Uh, the big difference, of course, is that countries just say, look, we actually control this enormous territory here, and it doesn't matter whether any individual property owner thinks otherwise. And so, I mean, of course, there are some libertarians who say, look, just as an individual is property, a country is property, and just as you can't go onto an individual land, individual's land without their consent, you can't enter a country without the country's consent. What I say is not only is this analogy wrong, it's they're directly contradictory because the whole idea of my property is I decide. And the whole idea of nationalism is that the country decides, which is it? And again, if you push this further, say, well, you can't decide whether or not you have a baby if you live in my house. That's true. So you can't decide whether you have a baby if you live in our country. Now, that's like the one child policy, one of the most oppressive policies that ever existed. People on some level realize that there is a big difference between a country making rules and a property owner making rules. The country doing it there are much stricter moral constraints upon what they what they can acceptably do. Um, yeah, so I mean, like the when libertarians have said, "Look, you can't enter my property without my consent," so you shouldn't be able to emigrate emigrate without consent. Right. Well, the same goes for trade. You can't open a store in my area, so you shouldn't be able to open a store in the country without government permission. That's a pretty tortured argument for a libertarian. I mean, you know, the t- the typical libertarian position on immigration is open borders or something close to open borders. Well, I mean, I wish you were right. I mean, I think that is the correct position. It's what follows from the view. But in fact, probably most people who call themselves libertarian are now anti-immigration. Sad to say. You think most? I, I think thought most, I, I would guess a large minority. One where there's a big elite and rank and file divide. So among libertarian intellectuals, I think there's still a strong pro-immigration position on average, although even there, there's definitely some very staunch people who disagree. But among just regular people, not intellectuals who call themselves libertarian, I think that most of them just have the standard right-wing view of immigration is bad and it's our country and they're trespassers. I think that's actually probably the most common view. If you look at, say, liberty, you go to Libertarian Party, I think that that is likely the view now, actually, and I think would have been a very common view even some years ago. Yeah, my my completely unscientific impression just from like, you know, existing intellectually around the movement and reading is that it's a large minority position that uh, favors some kind of restrictions. And and it's some combination of probably incorrect consequentialist reasoning on the one hand for more moderate types. And then for the otherwise more extreme libertarians, they have to make a lot of tortured arguments about why it's not a violation of of an individual's self-ownership or property rights to restrict uh, what kind of migrants they can they can interact with. And that somehow doesn't also apply to, like you said, to every other policy issue. Yeah, you can't open a church in my house, so no freedom of religion in a country, right? It's up to the country to decide what, what religion is okay in that country. I mean, so, I mean, honestly, at this point, my view of people who self-identify as libertarians is probably a lot more negative on immigration. I think that, again, probably something like 40% will make the ridiculous view that we have open borders already and we've got to close them. So basically, 40% probably wants much more restriction than we currently have, which is already almost total an almost total ban on, on immigration. Like if you were just to go and put it on the continuum from absolutely closed borders to uh, at zero to fully open borders at at one, I'd say we're probably at like 0.02. 0.05 is the most you could really plausibly argue for. If you just look ratio of people, the numbers that come now versus numbers that would come with no regulation at all, it's clearly a massive difference. And yet probably 40% of libertarians would just be delusional enough to say that we've got open borders already. 
And there's probably another 30% that think that it's complicated and maybe the status quo is okay, or maybe we should have more high skilled and less low skilled. And then I think there's probably only 30% are genuinely just in favor of even liberalization and maybe five or 10% open borders people. I mean, I do think that open borders position is much more prominent among libertarian intellectuals, libertarian professors, uh, although even there, it's not nearly as strong as you might think. Sad to say. Someone in the in the movement needs to conduct some kind of polling of, I don't know, I don't you know, know what like the 30 years ago, there was a big one for Liberty Magazine, obviously. That's what I was thinking of. But, but yes, uh, you know, so like this is one where I, I, mean, I generally avoid political poetry, but my favorite political poem that I have written myself is, this is not, you know, it's poetic rather than a real poem, is if libertarians will not stand up for the rights of immigrants to take a job from a willing employer, rent from a willing landlord, shop at the store of a willing merchant, then we stand for nothing and we are nothing. Beautiful, Brian. Yeah, just to be, you know, it's poetic. I mean, obviously it's not literally true, but even so, the, I mean, it's one thing for someone to think about it a lot and say, my God, like, I mean, I really understand the open borders is the libertarian position, but this is a case where the consequences would be so disastrous. We've got to make an exception. Um, I really see that most libertarians will take a couple of this most superficial arguments against immigration and just run with them. Whereas for almost anything else, libertarians are very skeptical. It's like, like someone says, well, we have to have worker safety regulations. Otherwise people have their hands chopped off. It's one where most libertarians will say, well, would they really have their hands chopped off? I think there'd be market forces. But for complaints about immigration, I've found libertarians to be highly credulous and just willing to take them at face value and then repeat them. I fear that you might be right. Why is nationalism the cause of both colonialism and anti-colonialism? Yes, and all the bad things associated with them. Well, that nationalism caused colonialism is pretty uncontroversial. You can just see you've got a bunch of countries with strong nationalist fervor. They happen to be militarily a lot stronger than the rest of the world for a while. And then they start coloring them, coloring in the map. So let's make a big part of the world. Let's color, you know, so let's give it the color of England. Let's make it all pink. And let's make the color of, of a lot of Africa. Let's make that all green like France. Here I'm thinking of the classic maps that were held, that were still being displayed in classrooms when I was a kid. The maps from like 30 years earlier. They've never gotten new money for new maps, I guess, or didn't bother with <laughs> them. All right. So anyway, you know, obviously what's going on with colonialism is you have people saying, you know, England's the greatest country in the world, France is the greatest country in the world. Let's go and, and conquer some other countries and civilize them. Um, so that so there's that side. But then the anti-colonial movement. This is generally these come up while after peace is established, once the horrors of the early colonial phase have, have been greatly diminished. And then you get radical intellectuals saying we need to have Vietnam ruled by authentic Vietnamese by any means necessary, whatever the cost, whatever the price. And so then we got a second wave of horrible wars of decolonization, which really did mimic the original wars of conquest in, in terms of being total bloodbaths leading to mass death. And then finally, turns out, guess what? Vietnamese can tyrannize over Vietnamese too. It doesn't, you don't have to be French to tyrannize over the Vietnamese. You don't have to be Belgian to turn the Congo into a graveyard. So this is what we saw. I am someone against colonialism, but also against anti-colonialism, you know, in general saying, look, if you've got to have a horrible civil war in order to get a political change, probably best to just live with whatever you got right now. 
Yeah, you've got a really provocative line in there. Uh, I, I forget what you call it. Cynical pacifism, I think. Yeah. Um, Cynical that, pacifism, yeah. <laughs> that that foreign and native rule are probably about equally bad. There's a transition that's hell on earth. It's yeah, yeah. So if you have if you're stuck with foreign rule, you might as well just live with it if you're gonna need to instigate some kind of civil war uh or revolutionary war to get native rule. It's probably not worth it because yeah. Right. Now, now, my question is, on balance, are you familiar with with uh, any good like empirical or quantitative work on this? Is there good reason to it? It seems to me like on balance, there would be some reason to favor native rule just on the grounds of being closer to that. The people, whether it's native or not, that the people ruling be closer and more integrated with the community in some way. But that's just a guess. Right. Maybe after a few generations, that's true. The main thing to understand about anti-colonialism is that you have fanatical elites that speak, that claim to speak for the whole country, take over, and then there's they're actually extremely different from most of the people in their country. So in Vietnam, you have fanatical Stalinists who take over. They are very different from normal Vietnamese people. Normal Vietnamese people just want to go and, far, and, uh, and run their farms in peace. And fanatical Stalinists want the government to go and seize the land at gunpoint and put them into slave labor camps to go and farm for the government in order to build up their military. Uh, so that's what we saw. That's just one example. Uh, so in terms of real established native rule versus established foreign rule, that's maybe. Even there, of course, the usual pattern is if foreign rulers rule your country long enough, they go native. So you know, like, oh, what's, yeah. terrible, what's terrible about Mongol rule of China? What's terrible is the first couple generations when Mongols think of themselves as different from Chinese and they lay the country's waste, lay the country waste. But guess what? After a couple generations, the Mongolian dynasties speak Chinese. There's Chinese as the Chinese predecessors. And then they're probably as close to their people as the previous dynasty, which also often were foreign themselves when you go further into the history. In terms of What's the actual, like, like, is there a good systematic data on this? I'm not aware of this. I know there was one canceled article just defending, you know, like imperialism relative to colonial independence. This is actually an article that got published in a major political science journal, and then people flipped out, and then it got retracted. Hmm. And then you read, and read the articles. Yeah, it's a pretty good article. I mean, it didn't settle things in my mind, but uh, I mean, here's a good way of thinking about it. If you, if it's possible for you to have an anti-colonial war that wins. It's usually because the colonial power has gotten soft and they're not that bad anymore. When a colonial power is real is willing to do mass murder in order to just keep their power, they keep their power. They lose their power once they start to get squeamish. And that's precisely when you say, look, they're squeamish people. They're not that bad anymore. So yeah, like once you're not willing to massacre whoever it takes to stay in power, like those are the kinds of rulers that you say, huh, we could do a lot worse than them. And you know, in the case of British India. You know, why was the British India, you know, the British lost control of British India? Like they, they weren't evil enough. They lost their will to go and, and, and machine gun crowds and kill as many people as it took to maintain their power. And once it was clear they had lost that will to evil, then they lost. You know, they lost the country. And then what happened? Well, then massive pogroms all over India, right? Just the body count still unclear, but probably between half a million and two million dead in the aftermath of that. You know, you'll have people like Gandhi saying, oh, well, it's not the place of the British to go and say that so we're going to go and defend ethnic minorities throughout India. It's like, well, guess what? They're the only ones that were willing, ready to do it at that point. And once they walk out, then it's a bloodbath. And then what do you have after that? Well, country splits into four countries, counting Burma. 
And then you've got a bunch of horrible wars between those successor states. You've <laughs> you've got socialism in India, you know, like, like well, socialism light, but still pretty bad. You know, very slow economic growth for all those decades. Honestly, like I think you know, the best thing would have been to go and grant independence from a position of strength. You never want, want fanatical activists to be able to say they've accomplished anything. But rather, like the best thing would have been to have said, well, we have a 30-year plan for independence. We're going to go and promote civilized, peaceful, moderate, moderates who understand the value of capitalism and civil liberties, people who do not care very much about ethnicity or religion. Those are the people that we're going to gradually hand power over to as, as long as, as things are going fine and smoothly, we'll just continue with this plan. But as soon as, as, as there are violent fanatics that start coming up, yeah, we're not going to give them one inch. When you um, say the best thing, you mean the best thing given the facts yeah. of colonialism? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, one, you know, once once you got colonialism, and you know, and like there's so there is some moderate pressure for decolonization. Like you know, the worst thing is really what was generally done, which is fighting it very strongly and then suddenly giving up. That is the that is prescription for civil war and bloodbath, and worse. Given what was going on, like, like you know, to do it in a a firm yet civilized manner would have been much better than what was done. You know, basically, colonial powers went in impulsively and they left impulsively. They went in saying, "Oh yeah, we've got to go and plant our flag there. This is this is a matter of our pride." And then it's like, "Oh no, well, now we're losing people, and like let's lose bodies coming home. Now let's leave." Um, you know, so just look disgraceful overall. Yeah, it's got to be impulsive. I mean, what would the history books always call it? The scramble for Africa. Yeah. Now, again, of course, there's this popular theory that was all about economic gain for the mother country, right? And, and this is one where like, when, it, when people have actually tried to crunch the numbers and so they compared all the resources put into getting and maintaining the colonies versus what you're able to extract, generally the pattern is the colonies are big money losers, probably, yeah, probably with a few exceptions of places that are very mineral rich. But overall, you know, the colonies are much more about national pride than about any kind of national prosperity or otherwise going and enriching the mother country. Um, well, and and it's also you might very successfully enrich small elites and the friends of small elites. Yeah. Seth so Rhodes gets yeah. gets a gets Rhodesia and a bunch of diamond mines like even there when you realize that you bring in a bunch of settlers and then once you abandon colonialism, the settlers flee for their lives and lose lose everything. It's like, huh. Yeah, that probably wasn't such a great plan after yeah. all. You've got one essay in here that, to my mind, captures a lot of this the spirit of, of your views on justice. And it's your dialogue. It's your Socratic dialogue on collective guilt. And, yeah. or, or just I've heard you say that, you know, an, a simple argument against collective guilt is like a good uh, disinfectant for a lot of kind of misguided right. arguments about right. justice. But I can you just say briefly what that's about and I've had so many conversations with people where I wish I could have channeled this this dialogue, specifically in the run up to the uh, or or <laughs> arguing with people about the war on terror. Well, let me just think about this. All right, you go and you arrest the worst serial murder in history. He's killed like five hundred people. You got him dead to rights, and then it's like, huh? Well, we can only execute this guy once, but uh, he's got five kids, ages one through five, and you know this guy murdered children, so. Wouldn't the just thing be to go and murder his children in front of his eyes? No. Why not? Because these are innocent children. They didn't do anything. Like the fact that their dad was a monster doesn't mean that they that doesn't mean that it's okay to go and punish them for something they had nothing to do about, something they're not even old enough to understand. 
like what kind of a monster would go and try to murder somebody's children because he was a terrible guy. And, you know, you, of course you could understand if your child was murdered, you'd be angry, but as a, uh, but as a third party, if the person says he murdered my children, I'm going to go murder his like, stop. Look, I know that you're going through something that is like living hell, but even so I'm not going to stand by while you murder children. No way, no how. Right? And if you were to put, be in that position, say, would I go and murder the children of a guy who murdered my children? Say, see, like I can understand the feelings, but God, no way in hell. That's just totally wrong. It is the canonical case of wrongdoing. Absolutely do not do that. Then the question is, all right, so what's wrong with going murdering the serial killer's children? It's collective guilt. It's punishing one person for what another person did, something that the other person had no control over, was not a part of. Now, you say, well, doesn't this mean you can't go and like punish the head of the mafia because his foot soldiers went and killed somebody? So, no, that's an actual organization that you voluntarily join. You are part of it. You're part of a team of, of wrongdoing. Makes perfect sense to punish everyone who joined that team. Uh, however, Collective guilt is, is almost never about like punishing a bunch of people in the same mafia family once you're able to establish they're all part of this. Rather, it's about blaming people of an involuntary group where you're born into it and you can't really get out of it, right? Like an ethnicity or a gender. Uh, religion, in a sense, you could get out of it, but it's still an unselective group. It's not like you, like everyone who belongs to the Catholic religion all works as a team to go and do Catholic stuff or everyone who's a Zoroastrian works as a team to do Zoroastrian stuff. So in that case, it seems like a very tight analogy saying, look, if the fact that you're that you are involuntarily part of some group that where some members did bad stuff does not mean that it's OK to punish you at all for what the other members of that group did. And this comes up in the case of so, you know, this this serial killer analogy is really stark. But what the dialogue is about, and this comes up in the case of war, but other things, too, is they attacked us. They attacked us. They attacked us on 9-11, Brian. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Who is they? Is it? It's not just nineteen hijackers and and a small organization of Al Qaeda uh, planners. It's the Middle yeah. East. It's Iraq. Yeah. It's Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, it's it's children in Afghanistan. Um, and nobody nobody wants to say it in exactly those terms. But that I think just remembering that with if if you put it that starkly, that collective guilt is a nonsensical and obviously immoral concept is. Is a helpful, uh, right. is a helpful insight. Well, you say that you know, like you know, the government of Afghanistan was behind it. All right. Well, do you have a plan to just kill people in the government? It's like, well, no, that's pretty hard. Actually, we got these giant weapons, and they're really effective, but they kill the people that were that we really want to kill, plus a ton of other people who are, yeah, totally innocent. Is it really hard for people to accept the fact that you are killing total innocents when you go and do Hiroshima or do the firebombing of Dresden? People want to say, well, the Germans started this, and now the Germans will see the fruit of their wickedness. Well, guess what? A lot of Germans didn't have anything to do with starting the war. A lot of Germans were against it. A lot of them are children who had no idea what was going on and couldn't possibly have any idea what was going on. So then you are at the crazy level of saying, well, it's the fault of all the Germans that, vote, that, that didn't overthrow Hitler. It's like, do you know how hard it would be to overthrow Hitler? Suppose you wanted to overthrow your government. Well, what's what's step one? How do you even get started on something like that? And until you do that, it, you know, it's open season on you. I think I have another piece in the book where I say, look, people often will say, all right, well, when is it okay for us to do bad stuff to them? People almost never ask, when is it okay for them to do bad stuff to us? But it's a symmetric question. 
So if you say, well, look, they did a terrorist attack against us, so we can go and bomb their bomb their capital city. All right. Well, if we went, if it turned out that we were the ones that started it and we went and did an attack on them, would it be okay for them to do a terrorist attack on us? So we're people saying no. Right. Well, then what's the difference? Right. It really like the only story that people ultimately have is who started it, who started it. So whoever started it, we can retaliate against them. But then this is a problem because guess what? It's really hard to know who started things like who started the war between Israelis and Palestinians. And even if you know who started it, like that depends on your frame of reference. Yeah. When you're talking about the who is your frame of reference countries? Is it cities or is it individual people? There's that too. But even if you were to say whatever side started it, we can, it's open season on them. Well, did the, did the war between Israelis and Palestinians, did it start in 1948? Did it start in 1900? Did it start in 900? Like, when do we go and declare the beginning of the war and then find the critical initiating event? Right. And furthermore, I don't think anyone seriously holds this because people have almost no interest in how wars start. It's just a question of, I don't care how they start. All I know is how it's going to end with us standing over their dead bodies. Typical rhetoric, but like, well, who's dead bodies? <laughs> the who's enemies. Dead bodies? Yeah, dead bodies of a whole lot of innocent people. Right. And then, you know, like there is like the human shield argument people make saying, look, OK, I know we're killing a lot of innocent kids, but this is sort of like they put a bunch of innocent kids on a tank and then charged us. It's like, well, so if there's like any children inside of a country that's like putting them on a tank, you know, this seems <laughs> like an extremely broad <laughs> definition of being of using someone as a human shield. You know, it seems like you are just lowering the standards for your own behavior to rock bottom so you can justify murder. Or you're you're coming up with very plausible, but very far, like you're yeah. coming up with moral examples of when it would be appropriate to do something yes. horrific that are theoretically possible. You could construct yeah. some kind of human shield hypothetical where you could imagine feeling justified yeah. in machine gunning innocent people, uh, but it would take a lot of intellectual gymnastics and the situation you, you pull up is something that's happened like twice in the history of humanity. Yeah. Yeah. You start off with, you got a terrorist, the bomb's going off in an hour. The only way to go and get him to tell you the location of the bomb to disarm it is to torture his child in front of him. Should he torture the child? Therefore let's invade Iraq. Therefore. And it's like, is that even remotely comparable? Like, do you like, we don't like, it's not like we know that like, you don't really know there's the weapon. You don't really know this is going to work. Right. So like, like you don't know that doing nothing won't lead to a better outcome. Yeah. So it's not remotely comparable at all. So you have one million books coming up. You've got Poverty Who to Blame. You've got Build Baby Build. You've got your next collections. You still have like three or four more collections, five, 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 five more collections. And five. uh your laissez-faire book, does that have a title? Yeah, that, that one's probably going to be called Unbeatable, The Brutally Honest Case for Free Markets. Yeah, so that is the that is my sort of main big project that I'm working on now. Uh, Build Baby Build, the graphic novel on housing, that's basically me supervising the artist, the script's all written. And then the books of essays, the main task there is just the proofreading. Uh, Don't Be a Feminist, uh, Essays on Genuine Justice is... Uh, it is unique among the books of essays because it does have a long original essay at the beginning. So that I consider a special selling point for this book. I mean, really, this was an essay that I was writing in my head for about 10 years. So I think it's pretty good. The best essays are actually ones that you write in your head for 10 years and then finally put pen to paper when you're good and ready. 
rather than one where it's like, I got to write something. What do I write? So that can, that can work out, but the very best pieces are ones that you have been thinking about for a long time. And finally you say, I'm ready. And uh, don't be a feminist letter to my daughter is one such essay. Will you do some kind of retrospective in, uh, you know, five or six years when she, whenever she takes an interest in reading it? Yeah, I, I, I very well may. I mean, like I try to respect my kids' privacy. Uh, like I don't want to go and uh, bring her on TV with me or anything like that. She might like it. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I honestly, I just wouldn't want to throw the dice and see, does she really like it? Or is she, <laughs> you know, I can see it's very stressful to be on television or like, you know, like someone says, so what do you think about your dad? Uh, <laughs> well, I just listened to the um, Freakonomics podcast where you uh, and several other economists came back after 10 years yeah, or whenever that, that podcast started. That was, that was fun yeah, to that listen to. That was a lot to. of fun. Yeah. My kids really happy to be part of that. Uh, so yeah, we, uh, I mean, it was fun. I basically got to have a fun conversation with my kids and Dubner, even though they were over at their school at Vanderbilt and I was here on my George Mason campus. So Build Baby Build, your graphic novel about housing policy, that that is the substance is done. You're you're working on art and then you're primarily working on supervising the artist. I am a control freak. I keep sending it back for revisions. It's going a bit (laughs) slow, but I think that'll come out by at least late 2023. And then you said you're primarily working on Unbeatable right now? Yeah. So the poverty book, I, I, I've just, I moved it further down the queue because I just think that Unbeatable is a bigger, more important book. And I think I can also write it more quickly. Partly, I just started this experiment saying, like, I feel this like this is more of a book that I've written in my head already. Poverty, I was learning as I went. And I was just thinking, well, if I can write a, a more important book in a shorter amount of time, why don't I just rearrange my queue and let some cost be some cost? I am going to write the poverty book in due time, uh, but I think I am going to do Unbeatable first. And that one is coming along very quickly. So I'm real happy with that. You think that'll come out before Build Baby Build? No, no, no. So it's not, not that okay. fast. Uh, but, uh, you know, maybe 2025, something like that would be realistic. You know, honestly, once a book is done, then usually it's another year before it, gets, it comes out. Sure. You know, the, you know, these books of essays, I'm doing them all myself on Amazon, which since they are collections of past essays, I feel like that is a fine model for that. I mean, partly this was just an experiment to see like how well can I do just on my own reputation without getting certified by Princeton University Press or anything like yeah. that. It's going well so far? Yeah. Yeah, so so it is, and I'm expecting to get some awesome publicity for "Don't Be a Feminist." You'll wait and find out. I mean, of course, the ideas having sex—that's fantastic publicity too. But possibly <laughs> even bigger publicity, maybe not better, but definitely bigger. Oh no, I'm sure. Hey, you you you've been you've been helping me grow cool. all your all your episodes. This is Brian's third third appearance on ideas having sex and i think they've all been my most listened to episode and that's uh, excellent the strength of of your audience what's the next collection of essays you have coming out next uh, collection of essays is voters as mad scientists essays on voter rationality my mm. research assistant just gave me the first draft of that so maybe three months and that'll be ready to come out for christmas oh awesome yeah i i was I was nervous because I've I started this podcast very deliberately feeling like I probably want to shy away from like hot topic culture war issues. Mm-hmm. But for you, Brian, you're one of my favorite living scholars and I, I would talk about anything. Thanks a lot. I mean, especially I, I, it's worth pointing out, people tend to misinterpret Don't Be a Feminist as a culture war kind of book. And look, I can understand why they would think that because most books that have this title would be but that is not me. I am not here to express anger at anyone. I'm not here to alienate people. I'm here to win friends and influence people. 
I am also here to be clear. So I, I want to believe in truth in advertising. Look, the point of that essay is to convince people to not be feminists. That is the point. I, 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 I frame it exactly that way. You know, of course, the first person I want to convince not to be a feminist is my daughter. That's why it's subtitled a letter to my daughter. But I hope that I stop a lot of other people from becoming feminists. And I hope to deconvert as many as I can. Right. And deconverting, like you don't deconvert people by telling them they're awful or by being angry at them. You say, look, I understand where you're coming from, but let's work through the evidence here and see that this is a view that does not deserve your support. You mentioned that some a lot of friends privately reached out to you to, to ask uh-huh. you to reconsider the title or, or releasing yeah. the book. Did you did you briefly consider any alternative titles? Well, the main thing that I considered is not giving it that title. And then I was thinking, so what else, you know, could I call it, you know, I could have called it, you know, like why I'm not a feminist or something like that. I could, you know, I could have just broken the pattern for all of these books and not made the first essay, the title of the book, or I could have picked another essay to make the title essay. You know, the, the, like all, like all of those were possible, but in the end, I, you know, I waited a few weeks. So like, I, you know, I listened to my friends. I had some friends saying, look, I'm worried about you, Brian. This is a really bad idea. You're making a mistake. When a friend reaches out like that, I don't say, how could you? No real friend would say that. I, I say, look, takes a real friend to say that. So my uh, my daughter's name is Valeria. I had a friend who, before she was born, did an intervention. She said, Brian, do not call her Valeria. It rhymes with malaria. It's a terrible <laughs> name. I, and like I said, like, I'm touched that you would care so much about my unborn child that you would fight to give to, to give her a name that she won't be made fun of for. Then I, I thought about it. It's like, look, it's not many people who do that. And we did stick with the original name. So look, this is, first of all, it's a family name. It's the remaining version of, Valer- of Valerie. She's probably going to go by her nickname anyway. I don't think that girls often have their names turned into cruel nicknames like boys probably would. Um, and But I said, but like it, that was a sign of a true friend. And I love you, man, for doing that for me. My guest has been New York Times bestselling author and George Mason University professor Brian Kaplan. Brian, thank you so much for coming on, and I hope to have you on again soon. All right, great. And let me just say, so this book is an Amazon exclusive. You can get it for the low, low price of $12 in the paperback or $9.99 for the ebook. I'll also say that despite record-breaking inflation, I have not raised the nominal prices. So uh, by now, it's a fantastic deal. And that, as well as some other things we discuss on the show, will be linked to in the show notes. All right. Outstanding. So always a pleasure talking to you, buddy. Thanks, Brian. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Ideas Having Sex, where we have stimulating conversations on social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you're a fan of what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening.